When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following big interview was posted in full for our socios, our members, our supporters, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter last season, which, in case you've forgotten, was 2018-19. Sign up there and you get these extra interviews 12 months in advance of everybody else, and who doesn't like to be ahead of the game? You'll have bonus content as well and a more interactive experience in general. For the rest of you... Here's what the socios were listening to this time last year. I'd firmly anticipate um, that this is the first and last time that a big interview guest um, went to the same school as me, grew up in the same village as me, drunk in the same pub at Hogmanay, as I did. The generations separate us a little bit, and it's not because of Beltside Boys taking over the world that Sean Maloney is our guest. It's because he was an extremely good footballer, somebody who gave you value for money every time you watched him, who was quick, witty on the pitch, evidently a very good student of the game, somebody who was so smart on the ball, so determined to succeed, that the fact that he doesn't quite fit in the modern physical template, just like Iniesta and Xavi and Villa and Messi didn't fit that template either, but dominated the world for club and country. Sean Maloney was a guy who I think was just dripping with fabulous technique, will to win. And in this episode of The Big Interview, some of those um, talents help him tell the story of his deep fascination with football, his ability to study the game, better himself, to be inspired by those around him, whether they are fellow players or um, elite coaches. He'll tell us tales of great free kicks. He'll tell us tales of regularly beating Manchester United. He'll tell us tales of what it's like to be the assistant coach to Roberto Martinez at the very successful Belgium um, set up and have to go and make relationships, build trust with Vincent Company, Eden Hazard, Fermat, and the list goes on. Sean Maloney is an intelligent, likeable, very interesting raconteur, somebody I admire. And it was fun having him on the big interview. And I'll bet you that if you devote a little bit of time to this while traveling into work, walking the dog, running in the gym, I don't care what you're doing. Listen to Sean Maloney because it will pay you back in spades and then recommend other people to do the same. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'll give you Belgium's assistant coach, future Scotland coach, certainly future Premier League coach, Sean Maloney. Big interview is not often recorded in the lovely city of Barcelona and never before in the lovely city of Barcelona between two built side boys. But that's what's in prospect today. Hello, socios. Hello, listeners. We have a Belgian with us. Well, Barcelona built side Belgium. We have Sean Maloney, FA Cup winner, um, brilliant Scottish footballer, and currently on international duty. Welcome to Barcelona, uh, Sean. Um, did you bring. Scottish weather with you? Uh, yeah, it's not great today. It's is stinking, it? isn't it? Yeah, but this is uh, still still an upgrade <laughs> from the uh, the weather I left in Glasgow for sure. So, listeners, this is an audio medium, not a visual medium, and uh, two Scots are sitting in Barcelona, and it's raining and it's grey. But nonetheless, we'll make jolly with a conversation. Um, what I want to know is why weren't you a little Scottish hope at Wimbledon long before Andy Murray? This <laughs> this, this this hidden talent must come out because. I'm told that you were a cracking tennis talent as a young man. True or not true? Uh, I think there might be a, a sliver of truth. Um, <laughs> I definitely don't think I was at the real like elite level, even at age of under 12 and 14. Um, so in Scotland, maybe in the top 10 of that sort of... Uh, when I was at my, probably my very best at that age. But definitely not at that elite level where you can go and uh, make a career. And thankfully, that decision was taken out of my hands as... Uh, probably stopped growing at that age, I think. Well, did you have an inkling? You know, because growing up, I grew up um, relatively near you. We would occasionally have Hogmanay in the same pub, although there's about 72 years between us. Cults Tennis Club was nearby, and there was yep. a real tradition of tennis in my neighbourhood. But Scotland and tennis, at that stage, if it wasn't a joke, you'd never believe that we, as a country, might make an impact on the, on the national scene. Did you have an inkling as a boy that things were healthy or that coaching was good or that Jamie and Andy were notably talented at that age? Uh, Jamie and Andy, even when I was under 14s, being on, when you travel around, you travel around the country, Edinburgh was a a big place for the tournaments. But I mean, literally, Dundee, the smaller tournaments, Montrose, um, there was definitely talk already of... um, of uh, Jamie and Andy and Andy in particular even at, I think a sort of buzz yeah even at the age of I think it was like 9 I think he or 9 or 10 he had like a, a European and a world ranking which which obviously meant we were playing in the in our national tournaments but he was at that level at his age group that he then went through to European and then world tournaments which um, obviously that's where the buzz started at a young age but it was it was amazing uh, I absolutely loved it you get to know other players you get to know other families so it's uh, from a social point of view it was, it was brilliant for a 12 year old and I suppose like if the competitive urge was a central part of, of doing well at that at a young age you know competing one on one is a really good lesson compared to you know there's a lot of one on one competition with fellow players in your own dressing room or your one on one opponent whatever it might be but I think the one on one mentality of sports like that adds to your ability to compete at a team level yeah, um, it's certainly that that one on one where you have um, where you have these sports. It's a the mentality of these people and the players is extremely strong because it is literally their results, their livelihood depend on how they do. There isn't um, as in football if you have 
bad game, which um, which definitely does happen. You obviously you can do a certain amount of work for your team, but you have that team to back you. So the individual sports and the mentality that's needed is is um, is very very different. Yeah, we've been talking about a fellow guest on this series, and that Sir Andy is still to topple. But Jamie's been on here. Jamie said that um, it was really really nice. He got in contact with us. He said, "Well, you make my travelling a lot easier, you know, because he jets around the world." on Air Force One or Two or whatever it is it's called and he said that podcasts were a big help to him and he listened to it a lot and that was that was terrific came on and um, spoke brilliantly about football as much as about tennis um, although he's fascinated about tennis and definitely thinks that footballers are much softer than tennis players at the elite level all this recuperation time <laughs> tired after travelling so you want right. to be you want to be on this circuit I don't know could could you have have you stayed in touch with either of them I think Andy no, got no, in touch no, with the, you after the FA Cup yeah I think he um, I think he tweeted something so it was um, no 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 I haven't seen either of them since and it was they were a fair bit younger when I was on the circuit oh I say circuit so it was I was maybe 13 and they were 9 and 11 I think so it was um, I met his mum I've spoke to his mum since at an airport um so uh, no, just definitely watch from afar as a proud with proud pride. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's um, pride, and also it can sh- it can it shows you that it can be done in terms of preparing or competing at that elite level. It can be done from people from our country can can do that. Mm. Um, so they sort of definitely paved the way in their sport. And from a from a well, only this is only my opinion, but from or how I felt is from. Seeing them, it sort of it gave me more motivation and to try and become even better. It did, did it? It did, yeah. And it's not just those; it's other sportsmen from our country. Mm-hmm. It, that's the way it felt for me. That it, it proved that it can be done from people from Dunblane or wherever in Scotland. It can. These people have done it in a very different way to others, but they found their way. And for our country, I think it's very. I think they're extremely proud of, of what those two have done. Yeah. What What would we need proving to ourselves as Scots? Why Why would why would we need, or is it the same for every country, that some sort of positive reinforcement that that your goals are attainable or that we shouldn't be fearful because we're a smaller country? Or What, what are the things that happen in, in a sportsman's psyche? I think from, from, from my sport, from football, it's, I think if we've all heard the sort of, we, we, we get so far, and particularly in the generation that I played in, we, got, we get so far, we have amazing results against big teams, but we never quite seem to, do enough to qualify for major tournaments or difficult to answer the question of how we change that but are you talking about that that remorseless mentality that we that we see in in winners and that some countries develop and then lose over different generations but we're different ages but when we're growing up we would always go into football and say well Germany have that Germany have that remorseless don't dip your level beat the small ones, beat the medium ones, beat the big ones as well. Is that the kind of thing that you're contrasting? Yeah, a little bit. So when it just seems um, it's sort of played over in the last probably 10, 15, maybe a little bit longer, particularly with our football team, that we always seem to have these really great performances, but it's never, ever sort of just quite... We get very, very close and it's not quite enough. Now, I think a big part of that is the mentality, So, and that can change. Um, or I, I believe we can change that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you know I'm a disciple of that too. But I suppose you have to, you know, have to, you have to open the cupboard and clear away the shadow to see what you're trying to change. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like you can't just, uh, you can't just say, wake up one day, okay, it's changed. There's, uh, I'd imagine, there's a pretty deep process, but it, but it can change. Like these, these, these athletes that we see, swimmers, athletes at the moment in the, I think it was European Championships, things like that. So. 
Um, previous, we've got golfers that have won majors like this. It can happen. Um, we just have to find our way and we have to sort of change the story of or the narrative of what's happened in the it, last 15, 20 years. It felt sometimes as an outsider, not a protagonist like you've been, that there seems to be some sort of, this might sound fanciful, addiction to glorious failure. And that's easy to write and say, and nobody ever went out to compete in any sport thinking, well, I'm a Scot, therefore the best thing to do is, is to come close and then say, oh, look what could have been. But it does, if, if psyche impinges on your performance, it has felt that either there's a fear of crossing, crossing the threshold or I don't think there's an, unless there's an, an arrogance and negligence to small details that, that can, has consistently, throughout my lifetime, tripped our football team particularly up when on the occasions that it's probably, you, you can legitimately expect victory or, con- or continuity and it doesn't happen and then an opportunity comes for brave glory against a, a side that should be better than us and then it doesn't happen it does feel that there's a sort of repetitive cycle there yeah I think it's sort of I don't think there'll be one certain thing what you've mentioned there was quite a few things and I'd imagine it's just cumulative so they mm-hmm. all I think there's all there'll be many reasons why um, we haven't qualified for um, a major tournament for quite a long period now Look, I was obviously involved with the majority of these campaigns since they're not. So then there, there's numerous reasons why each campaign, some campaigns we've got very close, others has finished, it feels like, after four or five games. So, But the, the story, the, the, it can change. It, can, it will change at some point. It's just... Um, it's just when, and a big part will be when the mindset changes. On, but it does. It's not easy. Like these things aren't easy, or, or it would have happened by now. We, we, I mentioned Jamie phoning in and saying, "Listen, um, you know, you're making my travel easier and all that kind of stuff. You're travelling a lot, and I've, I've always imagined, whether it be the bus back to Glasgow when playing for Celtic from Inverness, or the bus back from Southampton when playing for Wigan. First of all, it's a little obsession of mine. I'm not a great bus man." The, the idea of getting on a bus after a hard game, win, lose, or draw, but particularly draw or lose, and you've got a six-hour coach journey, is that or isn't that the biggest pain in the arse in sport? I never found it a chore. I think it might have been from a young age, really, when I when I broke in the Celtic first team. They were involved in a lot of games, European European games as well, and, and Martin O'Neill was adamant that the team stayed in the hotel the night before every game. So there'd be weeks and weeks that you'd be spending three nights, three nights of the week in the hotel, so... That was from 18 till probably, what, 20, 21. So I was used to it by then. Even now, when I stay in hotels, travelling here, hotels, no problem. Never got a problem sleeping or... Oof. Never. Um, and that's, it just became part of the job. Um, travelling, the same. Same when you've got a big travel and international and it, you get a really late, late way home, uh, late flight home, and you have to travel back to the club the next day. It's that fascinates me too, because... Although we're now taught, but let's so let's say you're you're you know you're playing Sean for whoever it is, whether it be Celtic or Hollow Villa or Chicago, and you've got a you know you, you finish at midnight after all duties are done, and you're you warm down the media duties, and you're an hour to the airport because it just is, and then you're half an hour aboard, and then you fly for four hours, and then you're back at your house for breakfast time effectively and like coach might say we're training at 11 or training at 6 yeah. and it'll be recuperation it'll be trying to um, uh, make sure that the body and the, the muscles are, are in fine shape 
But if he says training the next day, like full training, you're still being judged that next day after a long flight, no sleep. And like you say about your mindset, you have to be at it. Yeah, you, I think you you almost become, or I, I became autopilot at that point. You, It's like the next game, so there's never every minute of that post-game, pretty much straight away, you're recovering now for the next game. And it was the same on the flights home. You're eating. They've obviously done the menu for specific recovery. It was. It wasn't really too much time to to get bored. You speak through the game. Different now as a coach, you watch through the game again. And when you've got these long travels, but even even as a as a player, like things are, you recover. You're eating. You can watch a movie. You can do something. And the next day again, it's you're just getting ready for the next game. Or that's how I felt. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way. I don't know how healthy that was, but that's how I, I sort of lived. It was well, don't reflect too much. Just be in the the process, the moment. Get your mindset that this is all like it isn't ninety minutes. It's all it's the training for, the preparing for, the playing through, the getting out of, and being ready for the next game. A constant cycle. Yeah, that's yeah, that's it. I felt I felt it was a constant cycle. It was. Um, I'd watched the game back um, that I played in. Uh, definitely certain parts of it and then it was on to the next game um, recovery training training for the next opponent it was a constant cycle um, it was very much a, I felt it was a 24-7 sort of job so even even socially that all revolved around next day's training or how that would impact in, on the game at the weekend uh, so it was uh, that's, that's how I saw it in any kind of dangerous territory and it's also, I know it's sometimes a little bit difficult to be self-analytical particularly if there's a microphone on but is it just you and me nobody's listening <laughs> that's <laughs> alright yeah I know right. well another fellow guest on this series was Neil Lennon and because uh, Neil White and Mark Gregg and I have been you know long-term admirers of you and your skills and your attitude we talked a little bit with him about it and he he I mean, I'm going to touch on what Roberto Martinez says about you too, but Neil definitely saw... He certainly thought that you you were so bright about the process of being a professional and about football that it had helped you to be analytical, but that also sometimes maybe that... I don't know quite where he was going to, but that over-analytical skills could leave you maybe sometimes less prone to improvisation or when you say that maybe it was veering towards not unhealthy but like it's a it's not a pure plus it's also a negative what, what are the themes that you two are getting at there on the pitch it, i never felt restricted or I, I just saw it as a part of preparation i think i think where i struggled at times was is where if there was things within the the club's structure or how we prepared for games that i didn't feel was quite correct then ah, that's where i would yeah. maybe start to struggle but I think that was definitely on me rather than anyone round about me. Um, With that specific instance, we're talking about like, is it like a sentiment of, I'm doing my best, I'm going at my utmost, that shouldn't be happening like that, and therefore it's a thorn in my side, it's sticking in my craw that everybody should be doing their utmost or the, or the right things as I see it. At times, maybe, but yeah, I think just within certain games, sometimes you'd feel that uh, post-game, post if, um, if we'd prepared slightly differently, things might have been different. But then that, that I think that happens in in every level. There's always things when you look at when you look back. I suppose that's what's part of 
when you review things and you have feedback, that's what you're trying to do. You're obviously trying to continually improve to make sure that when you're in the situation again, that you, you, you might have a different idea or a different thought that will change the outcome. But I never, I never felt restricted on the pitch. I think with the way that we played at times with, with Wigan is that it was very structured in terms of like the position of players, but when you received the ball in certain areas, you had complete freedom to, to try and create or, or run in certain areas. So I, I, but I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that structure, the team structure, but then when in certain areas you had a great amount of freedom. That, that was probably where I felt the most clear going into a football match and probably the most enjoyment. Well, it's Roberto who says you know, a remarkable thing, but he says that you're you know, a brilliant analyst. That you've got. I mean, his exact expression is a privileged mind. So, <laughs> shine us and watch the aside because, because essentially, the real subject in these podcasts, irrespective of who's sitting opposite me, is football. Yeah. So we're not. You know, I'm not putting all that brilliant mind um, on you. <laughs> I don't know how brilliant I'm not. So, but don't you know? Don't duck it because of modesty. I am interested in that. That the. The, the, the fit between you and he as, first of all, coach and, and professional employee and, and now as, as colleagues, there was, you know, you, you evidently see things the same way and, and want to see practice football in the same way. When you said you liked his system and that, that, that positionally the demands of where everybody should be was quite clear, just try and describe that for the listener so that they can understand it. Yeah, so the system... The system we played at the time was three four three, but it wasn't so much the system, rather like the principles that he sort of had within that. So when we were in possession, you had specific parts of the pitch that he wanted you to occupy, um, and he wanted us to go through the the sort of areas of the pitch together as, as a team and in as organised sort of positionally as we as we could be until a certain sort of phase of that pitch, and then he would allow the, the more attacking players to have the freedom to. 1v1, uh, different types of runs where you try and maybe beat the defensive line. He allowed great freedom in that sort of final third. And this, I hadn't really played, um, I hadn't really played under a coach that um, coached like this. And it just all, it just all made sense. And it just, I knew, I knew there was a way of playing that, that um, at times it probably didn't help the teams that I played in. But I, once I'd obviously went to work um, with Roberto and, and his coaches, not just him. Things started to make sense a little bit more, and for, for a player, or, or or at least for me, I found it just like just liberating. Is there just a coordination between Roberto finding a player like you who could understand the system, your part in it, and the sense of liberation you felt? Because I mean, we have to be frank here: personalities of individual individual players aside, three four three in English football is an extreme rarity. You're talking about in the years before Pep Guardiola came and very much changed even the vocabulary. We're all talking differently, I, I, I think. And Roberto Martinez played with Jordi Cruyff, was, was very friendly with Johan Cruyff. I, I think his ideas for English football at that time were relatively innovative and advanced. But he clearly found in you, without any you know, modesty aside, somebody who understood and enjoyed that system and could practice it. Yeah, I had I had to learn. Like it took me. I when I when I signed for Wigan, I was in really poor condition. I'd been injured for. I'd been injured pretty much on and off for a couple of years, and it, I had to get used to actually training each day again and get that build up a tolerance of training. But it was actually looking back, it was one really. It was really good for me that for the first few months, I could literally training sessions, team meetings, tactical meetings. You could just. It was a different style of play. Soak it up. Yeah, I could actually. I could actually learn how he wanted our team to play. 
But it wasn't it wasn't rigid with the three four three. It would it would change. There were definitely games that we played. Um, I'd play central as a ten, and we played two split strikers. We've played four three three before with a defensive midfielder dropping into a, to make it a back three in possession. It's like there, it wasn't just three four three with Roberto. The mm-hmm. principles always stayed the same, but the system can change, and and that's still the case now with with Belgium. It doesn't. It's not rigid with one with one system. It's the systems. Not irrelevant, but it's like the main the main issue with us yeah. at Wigan was the was the principles that he was putting. I like the image of the let's say the split strikers and you as a ten. Other people would have called that a false nine because you get the the, the ability to drop into spaces where you want to and pick it up at the right time, run at people and and occupy a space that a traditional nine would have used. So presumably, in in applying that, being a fan of continental football, you, you'd have seen how Messi applied that under Guardiola in those years when he took over yeah we, we, we were slightly different there would I even I wouldn't have I would have I would have called it a real 10 the way we played it because because I, I certainly there would I, I had defensive duties out out of possession so with um, with the way that Barcelona played it that <laughs> you can understand with the level of player uh, in that position out of possession there wasn't as much to do for for him in that false nine no but with the ten that I played, there was definite. Um, there were, there yeah, were there moves. definitely were. So and we would li- and we would leave the the two strikers in a wider area, and it would be we would defend with two two defensive midfielders and me as a ten. Let's jump back a little bit because you know it's enjoyable to be able to talk about the structure of football and situations like this. But I also like people people stories. We grew up in slightly different areas of Aberdeen, but but eventually, you know, quite quite geographic, close to one another. When I went to school, I went to Cults Academy, and for part of your academy, academy education, you did too. And there was a point at which, certainly when I was there, Alex Ferguson's house overlooked the playing fields. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just his personality emanating out, but I knew him and his family at the time, and I watched the team that I love changing in its, in its hardness. I mean, how well they played. It was a complete change in toughness under him. Were you aware of his legacy, his presence, the the idea that he lived in a city where where Ferguson had changed things, dominated. Yeah, like his um, his name and his achievements still are. I don't think they'll ever leave that city. And particularly when I was growing up, I knew that road, and that was always oh, that's where up Quarry Road. Yeah, yeah, it's Sir Alex now, but it was that's where Alex Ferguson used to live. And the Aberdeen Times, even when I went back as a as a young player with Celtic first team, like the pictures on the wall. In Pataudry, but the city, the city is from that period of time was folklore up there. Um, like it's spoken about on a pretty regular basis. The fact that we're speaking about it now means that it's um, his achievements just incredible. But as a young as a young player, I was or not as a young player as a young young boy really coming through. The, my first real thoughts of or memories of football were Aberdeen had come out of that period. So mm-hmm. um, so I, I, I don't remember. Unfortunately, yeah, I was born in 83, so um, it must have been some time to be a, a young Aberdeen supporter. It's a lovely, lovely year. Yeah, it must have been a great, a great time to be a young uh, Aberdeen fan. It was inspirational, it was guiding, but it just it interests me because you've intersected your career with Alex Ferguson over the years, and, and you've done quite well. I didn't, um, didn't realise that. You've, well, you've, well, look, for Celtic, you play in a team in the Champions League where you beat Manchester United in order to go through the group. Mm-hmm. Things that all Scottish football is, is yearning to do right now. At Wigan, you beat an Alex Ferguson team and, I don't know, just let me turn this around. Who scored? Yeah, so Sean Maloney scored and 
There's a Chilean um, assist on it as well because Bush is your gives you the little ball to go through and in 2012 that victory helps cost United the title because when you play United are 79 points and City are 74 and by the time they famously finish it's 89 points each it's the mad end to the season and I'm not actually blaming Wigan but those three points would have been quite valuable (laughs) what's it like when you beat Manchester United? I think because uh even Celtic's a massive club, but when we play United, the underdogs, the feeling's a little bit more pure. It's literally, well, I found it's literally just joy. Like, real, you work incredibly hard for that result. There's moments, obviously, of where you score, where it's real, real sort of like spiking, sort of like uh, elation. Um, but it's just, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a more of a joy when, at times with Celtic, the pressure's that relentless, or it was really when Celtic and Rangers were very, very close. So it's, it was more of a relief. You win, okay, uh, there's a good chance that Rangers have won, and you just have to go again. It's, it's like a, you win, right, well, relieved, you move on to the next one. It's different when you're a smaller team, or I found it when, um, when we beat United, when we beat other big teams, it was like a real, a real sort of joy. At that moment, we really needed that. We were really, yeah. really struggling near the bottom of the league. And the difference, so this was the mindset that we spoke about earlier, that the mindset change in that group of players at Wigan was was just huge for, for weeks and months there was um, we were in the bottom three and the difference then going to the Emirates playing Man United going to Chelsea in times the mindset was completely different we, you actually go there thinking if we play as well as we can we, we, we can win this game so not a concept of a free hit it doesn't matter what happens here the concept that if we get this right and hit our level we can win against any of these is that yeah, I think more, more what I'm saying is is that we, we didn't have to catch them on a bad night. So sometimes you hear, or you do hear that, we have to catch them at a bad night and we have to be a good night. We felt at that time, and whether we were maybe a little bit deluded, uh, <laughs> but for, for in that period of time, we felt that whoever we played, if we played as well as we could, we could we could win the match. It's a powerful psychological sentiment to have. Yeah, but it was just the mindset of that, it was the confidence that we had. In fairness to Roberto, this was when I also noticed that at times of real high pressure and stress is when he was just a he had a level of calm that was very confident in his tactical ideas and the principles would, would eventually see us through and, and the confidence the team grew sort of each game really and it just puts in that different mindset and and really really although we won that game 1-0 the first half second half Man United changed change system um, and they, they started to dominate probably the last half hour of that game but, but the first half of that match was probably in the, the one half the most Dominant have been against a really elite team. Really? Yeah, and um, and really, when you look at our players and well, let me obviously, read the team. Yeah. Al Habsi, um, Al Karaz, Guy Caldwell, Emerson Boyce, uh, Menor Figueroa, James McCarthy, yourself, James MacArthur, Jean Beausjour, Franco Di Santo, and Victor Moses, with Connor Salmon and Diami coming on. But in that first period, there's no subs. That first period, when you feel dominant and you send Ashley Young, for example, for an early bath, he's taken off at halftime. What was the reason for the dominance? We were we, we were prepared on how they were going to play. I think uh, yeah. So Wayne Rooney, uh, Hernandez. So we thought they were going to play four four two. So um, we'd sort of um, we'd set up set up basically our um, tactical plan for that game. And in the first half, it worked absolutely perfectly. Um, we had um, extra numbers uh, in the middle of the pitch, and we just had we managed to to create just secure possession. And that very rarely happens against mm. a team that's full of players that are all 
technically better than the, like than us. So all of their players are technically better than us, are playing at a higher level. But for that for that first half and the way that we were tactically and like we were all we we're all obviously competent technically, we just felt that the way it worked, it was uh, we just dominated that first half. And I had never felt that way against uh, a Man United. Um, I've played against elite teams where we have got results before, but it was in a very different way. That's quite striking. That's really extraordinary. It, that really it changed. Like it changed in the second half, but, yeah, but for that first half, it stuck with me. It's a testament to tactics, to strategy, to belief in the manager, manager's ideas. Also, I guess it's a testament to belief in, in one another. Because I think smaller teams or um, teams with slightly less technical skill than the ones they're facing will often go in they'll never say it out loud but they may doubt two or three of their own teammates I know he's not up to this that that will very often be one of the things that makes a lesser opponent fall down to a bigger opponent it's difficult I've never thought that way um, I hope nobody's thought that of me when playing no. but it's I hope I hope not I hope because even even though we look at we, we go through the teams and Man United are technically and the level of players higher I, I don't think you ever or I hope people don't ever look at their own teammates and it's like well he might not be quite because we're all we're all at Wigan. We're all. It just it just felt taking Wigan out of this. I, yeah, I, sorry. I've, yeah. I've watched and listened to fellow pros talking about one another, and and maybe I'm lucky in that you know I've tended to sit down with players at the top of their and and, and <laughs> I hear when they know certain players haven't got the maybe the the temperament, the winning mentality, or they've got an error in them, and because those senior players aren't the managers, they can't get rid of them. I know it goes on, and it, and it obviously is rare, and it tends to be in a time when a bigger team is declining. But smaller teams, you you can see when eight players have got the right mentality and the boss's message, and two or three don't, and you notice. So you uh, you've interviewed some pretty uh, <laughs> pretty high level uh, people. So I've tried to learn. I've tried to listen. Hopefully you enjoyed that big interview which was first released as an exclusive to our socios 12 months ago. If you'd like to get these interviews on the first day that they're available, it's time for you to join us to become a socio and for only £2.99 a month, you will get an exclusive big interview plus regular mini documentaries, not only all ad-free but all featuring me and bringing you interesting, funny and sometimes scandalous things from Spanish football. Go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter to unlock our entire archive. That means that once you join, you will have a treasure trove of interviews with funny, elite, interesting, revelatory top class footballers. By joining us, you will help support this independent podcast. You will help to keep us on the road interviewing people and sending that content for your delectation. If you go to the gym, you'll be slimmer. If you've got a dog, he or she will thank you. If you've got a TV, you can turn it off and listen to this instead. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.